As uh, we've noticed this morning in our sermon, or in the bulletin, that it is a menu. Things don't always come off as planned. Um, Here's another one. This is not the sermon on the reader board. Okay, I am in Ephesians 4 this morning, but I'm going to read one verse, just the first verse. And then as a reminder of what we've been doing in Ephesians... I'm going to go back and kind of catch a little couple of things, some concerns that are within the book that I think we need to bring out before we go forward. And so this is it, okay? So here we are, Ephesians 4, 1. Therefore, and I'm going to get to that therefore in just a second just to let you know it's not the first time Paul has sort of got back on track. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now, I want to make sure that you know that I think that the church in general uses Ephesians really well for doctrine. It does that really well. Ephesians is one of those books you can get a lot of really good doctrine out of Romans and Ephesians, and if you put them together, you have a really strong Pauline basis But you might have noticed that I've not actually been preaching Ephesians as a doctrinal book, but more as a spiritual formation book. How is God's life formed in us? And and so as we do that, I just want you to know that there's there's something out there. You've all run into the individual Christians, and and they don't really need the church. They don't really want the church. but, but But a Christian a disciple, a follower of the Lord um, that's alone without a church is a concept that's utterly foreign to the Bible. Okay, the Bible doesn't know any such thing as a, as a believer without a context. And so as we do this, I want to I point out some of these things about, about context and Paul. Okay, so this, our verse today starts off with, this is my first concern that we make sure that we get sort of understand around spiritual formation. Paul, therefore Paul, I, Paul, and he's kind of getting back on track. He uses his therefore to kind of pull himself back to a spot, walk worthy of your calling. But throughout the book, he sort of said, oh, and because of that, we do this. And, and then he goes off and he kind of gets, you know, he's kind of like the dog in Up. Have you seen the movie? Oh, squirrel. <laughs> I talked with... Uh, with a member of our congregation, I, I don't have I I don't see him today. He I, I think he might be in with the high school kids or Lloyd. Lloyd was talking to me about um, being around Paul must have been very interesting. That Paul would kind of just always had what we were talking about plus the four things that were behind that in mind every time he was saying. And then if you said a word, he'd go oh, and then and then he was off on another rabbit trail. And there was always a cul-de-sac. In the, in the faith discussion that he needed to go wander around in, sort of a boondoggle, if you will, someplace to go get stuck and sort of ruminate with. Spiritual formation is not a task that you can work at and say, well, I did step one, and now I'm going to go work on step two, and as soon as I finish step two, I'm going to do that. I want you to see spiritual formation, the 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 process by which God forms his life in you, much more along the process of this. 
you're on a three-block walk with a three-year-old. And you're holding their hand, and they're in charge of the agenda. Okay, have you done this? Has anybody done this? You walked with a three-year-old? As you're walking down the sidewalk, is there water in the gutter that needs to be noticed? And maybe there's a stick in the water. And then if you get a bunch of sticks, you get a little dam, and that needs to be broken up. And perhaps there's a tree growing that needs to be noticed. This is not a a driven, sort of goal-oriented process that God is working on with us. I forgot to do this with our our, um, computer, but person but and so don't worry about this but because i didn't do it but do you remember when i got here it seems like years i said years ago in the first service it was about four months <laughs> i tell you i'm 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 in a boondoggle i'm in a cul-de-sac of faith and i'm loving it i'm ruminating in it but but i but i put up what i call dave's uh, scale of spiritual formation do you remember that that it starts off with, with a, a person completely unformed and then a line. And that line is the belief of Christ that he starts to form. And then there's another line over here, and it says perfectly formed. And this line is, is you in heaven. It's you dead. Are you in a big hurry? <laughs> this is not a goal-oriented process. But in the middle, in between, are such terms. Do you remember my terms? Sort of formed partially formed, generally formed, mostly formed. That that's the process that, and that I'm formed in some areas and you're formed in other areas and we're all kind of working at it and God is working his process. But I want you to see that the process of spiritual formation is essentially with the three-year-old on a walk. Now I want to ask you a question. You have two, in my my picture, you've got a three-year-old and an adult. Where's Jesus in that picture? The adult. Where are you? The three-year-old. <laughs> Just want you to recognize that he's kind of letting you notice stuff. And you know, if you're in a hurry to get to the post office or wherever you're going on the three-block walk, the three-year-old is not walking. Right? They're riding or car- being carried or held, and you're off. And you're running. But God isn't that way. He's, kind of, he's really interested in the process. And I want you to know that he's going to get stuff done in us, right? We're going to do stuff at the church and all that. But the process by which God does it is really important. Because in the process of us doing stuff, whatever that is, could be getting bulletins done. It could be doing newsletters. It could be having church conferences. Whatever it is, it could be the time of chaos in the first service. That the goal is to get us done in the process of us doing stuff. Do you understand? God's goal is us done. I don't really think he cares about whether there's bulletins or not. Now, sometimes we need organization. I want you to know that. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not getting against or bulletins or any. We need them. But God's work is much more about the process and about us sort of wandering around. And sometimes 
as, as, I, as I was talking with Lloyd about Paul, he, he's a bit of, uh, of quicksilver, liquid mercury. You can't really pin him down on a topic because he's got so many topics going on. We're kind of like that. But God is okay, and he's working away, and it's his process. And so we've got to let him have his priority list in our life and his priorities in the person sitting next to us. It's really easy to kind of give up our own priorities in our life when God's talking to us, right? Like, like this morning, I'm working really hard to have a short sermon. I'm not entirely in charge. I was, I was going to be short in the first service. I was like 10 minutes longer than I normally am. And, and God was kind of in charge, but he's okay with the process as long as he's honored. And it's really easy for me to sort of give up control during the sermon to him because I feel him so close. What's hard for me is to give up my priorities in somebody else's life. Have you ever experienced that at all? Like, if they would just, if they would just not dress that way. It would just be so much easier for everybody if their clothing was different, or perhaps if they would just lose that language. You know, God can handle all that. Just let it go. Just let go of the judgment and, and, and start onto the journey that's not aimed at a, at a goal that you can see, but God's working it. And so enjoy the cul-de-sac, the boondoggle, the, the rabbit trail. That is faith. That's my first concern as we work through this. The second concern is this, is that we've, we've sort of lived a life where we talk about love a lot, don't we? We talk about love a lot. And have you ever noticed the Bible says this one thing about, I was, Colton's all ready to come up and play Twister with me because I got the Twister board out. <laughs> you, you know you can't play Twister without, the, without this? You want to help me spread this out? We're not actually going to play Twister. They just need to see it. So, let's go this way. So um, we talk about love a lot. Do you, do you know this? That you can't actually, that this board, that if we were playing Twister without this, put your left hand on green would be a constant argument. <laughs> it's on green. No, it's not. Right? That's the way kids are. Put your left hand on green. Put your right hand on yellow. Where, well, where's the yellow? We'll call this yellow. The board sorts out the arguments. It sort of makes the game work, doesn't it? I love this about this board here, too. You know what? There's no dice to lose. (laughs) This is the entirety of the game. This is genius, isn't it? (laughs) There is no moving. There's only. (laughs) That's it. That's this game. But anyway, so this is this. But do you know what this board is? It's the context in which the game is played. I want to talk to you about it. Okay, I'm done with this. The, the context for love working from God is his grace. We, we look in the Bible all the time and we see things and we say, God's love never fails. Why does God's love never fail? Have you got it? Thank you, Colton, my, my wonderful assistant. <laughs> That works so much better than in the first service when I didn't have an assistant. <laughs> but, but God's love never fails. But, but I want you to take a deep look inside you for a second. Does your love ever fail? 
Now, I, I notice I didn't ask you whether or not somebody else's love for you has failed. Because I know the answer to that question. But the, the reason your love fails and God doesn't is because our love isn't always encased in this context of grace. That grace, that there, there's a spot in, in, uh, in uh, the second chapter where God's grace is poured out on us. Do you know what it is? His grace is graciously poured, is graciously gracious, is the way it is. That, that the word, words based on grace in Ephesians, there's 12 of them in the first three chapters of this book. That he's talking about the love of the Father for us and what God's done for us, and it's all within the context of grace. And w- the reason we don't see it quite like that is that, is that uh, words that are based on grace in Greek all have the same root, root, uh, chi, alpha, rho, Cauteris, they all start have this charis root in them. And you can see them in the Greek. They're really obvious because they don't change the root of the word when they use a synonym in Greek. And so you can see these 12 things, and it's like this grace. It's God's grace forgives. It pours out forgiveness. It just is, it just is completely part of the process of loving. And because we don't always have quite so much grace in our lives, then our love doesn't work quite the same. You can't breathe constantly without the air. You need that environment. Love, to never fail, needs the environment that God brings with it, which is grace. Grace for you. Long before you knew him, his grace was being poured out on you. Long before you recognized that his grace was there, his grace was there. His love flows in the context of grace. Okay, that's my second concern, that we understand that, that this is how this works. His love is always within the context of grace. May we find a way to have that grace flow out of us so that our love, the love that God pours into us that's on, that was meant for us, that's on its way to somebody else, can it can that grace flow through that you could just forgive people, that you could let them be who they are, you could let God work in them, you could be all that, that that would be the context by which your love would never fail. Because love needs the grace environment to do that. And you can't, just as you can't play Twister without that big sheet, right? Okay. So now I have this third concern and I'm trying to be conscious of time here because this is, this is harder because we have a thing after this that we're going to start with or without me. <laughs> I have this spot in my memory with a professor talking about a man praying for 25 minutes at the end of the service between the service and the potluck and the pastor going up and saying, while brother so-and-so continues his prayer, we're going to go eat. <laughs> So, but there, this this other concern, this is the concern. The church, the context of spiritual development of 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 uh, spiritual formation in us is the church. I already said that the concept of the Lone Ranger Christian is utterly foreign to the scriptures. Now, I'm not doubting that you can be a Christian on an island all by yourself. It's the depth 
to which you can be a Christian that can happen. Why? Because you need people to help you. How many of you do everything on your life all by yourself and you never need any help? Roy, Roy is the biggest helper in the world, so he just helps everybody, but nobody ever helps him, right? <laughs> that was great, Roy. Perfect timing. But here's this way. Um, I want to get over this, that Dorothy Sayers says it this way, that, that Jesus has, there's three humilities that Jesus has put through. We're really familiar with the first one, right? He was born in a barn, Have you gotten over the fact that your Savior was born in a barn? Have you gone through a house and not had your dad say, what, are you born in a barn? As though that's a bad thing. As though if you had any manners at all, you wouldn't have been born in a barn. Like you had any control over where you were born. But our Savior was born in a barn. There was nothing to to bring him to people that people love. There was nothing lovely or comely about him, that there was nothing to recommend him to people, that he was born in a barn in the least of these and the poorest of families and all this. That is a little humiliating. Have you gotten over that? Have you forgiven him for that? Yes, you have, haven't you? You've gotten past it. The second humiliation is this, that he died a sinner's death on the cross, a horrible death at the hands of the Roman Empire of the most just society known to that point in the world. They prided themselves on their justice. Jesus was killed by that society on a cross in a brutal death to the, which the world says, what a ridiculous thing. If he were a savior, certainly he could have saved himself. It's a humiliation of Christ to die on the death. Have you gotten over that? You've gotten past that, right? That the blood on the cross did something for you and now you need him and he's your savior because of that. But the world kind of, have you noticed that there's a whole bunch of, of um, well, there's a whole arm of Christianity that doesn't even sing songs with the word blood in it because they don't like substitutionary atonement. They don't like it. As though I don't like it is a sufficient theological reason to not have something. I don't like it. Well, too bad. It's not your salvation. It's God's salvation poured out for you. We didn't get to pick the method. He knew what the need was and provided the need. But that's the humiliation of Christ. Do you know what Dorothy Sayers says the third humiliation of Christ is? Being represented by the church. Okay, now I want you to know that I love his church because as, as a friend of mine and I would say to each other, and we've figured this out and honed it, and I've even repeated it, that Jesus in me really likes the Jesus in you. But have you ran into somebody that would just has this attitude in life? The church, that's a ridiculous thing. What, what, why would you ever go do that? I mean, not Christians. Christians would never, ever say that, would they? I mean, what's to be gained by meeting together and hearing this really boring guy talk up front and singing some old songs, and then you shake hands and you have some pie? Well, of course, the pie is pretty good, so maybe it's worth the whole thing. But that's the world's view of what church does. 
but we've gotten over the humiliation. We're not embarrassed by Jesus that he was born in a barn. That we've gotten over the, the embarrassment that he was killed on a cross. But sometimes I just want to say to you that I've run into a lot of Christians that have not gotten over the embarrassment of the church. They spent a lot of time looking for the utopian church, the perfect church. And they bounce from church to church looking for it. And they cast judgment and dispersions on people because that church doesn't do it right and this church doesn't do it right and blah, blah, blah. Have you looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament recently? There was no perfect church. And the Holy Spirit hasn't seen fit to create one yet. Well, he will. But it's after this red line on the spiritual development thing, right? That we go and we die and we're in heaven or he starts his own kingdom. In the same way that there is no such thing as a functional, fully Christian government until Jesus is in charge of it. Until then, there's people involved and there's going to be problems. I'm not breaking new news to you, am I? You've heard it said that if you found a perfect church, you couldn't go to it because you would ruin it. (laughs) Okay, I'm not making fun of you. I'm not. I have a definition of how I understand the best case and the worst case of church. Are you ready? The worst case scenario of church is that you'd come to church and have to sit next to people that you would never, ever choose to sit next to and do stuff with them. The best case scenario of church is that you would come to a building and you would sit next to people that you would have never, ever chose to be near and you're going to do stuff with them. The whole difference is where you are in your attitude. I don't, I just, they don't do it right. Look, we're going to do some, it's great. The people are fun. We're, we're going to, but the church is this. The church is a place much more like a workshop for sinners than than a historical museum. That God is working with us as we learn to love unlovable people. Now, don't don't look around for a second. Put on your blinders, okay? I want to make sure that you know that I'm not calling any of you unlovable. I'm calling me unlovable without Christ. Can you call yourself that? And as other people learn how to love you, you're going to learn how to love them and you're going to knock the edges off and pretty soon Christ is going to be formed in you as all these little cul-de-sacs and grace flows through every situation and love starts to form in you your cul-de-sac in this little boondoggle called church is going to form God's spirit in you fully. And it's his project. I want to ask you one question. Can you trust him to be at his priorities? Has he proved trustworthy in any area of your life? Has God proved trustworthy to you? Okay, if he has not, come talk to me after the service. Because I'm going to correct some things. Because if you think he's not been trustworthy anywhere, he's been trustworthy to provide all sorts of things for you every day. 
And you need to trust that in the same way that when it comes time to have faith in your life, you've already had faith developed in you by sitting in chairs you didn't even know about. You walked up and you sat in the chair and then you come into this room and there's a new chair and you've never sat in that chair, but you trust it. That's how faith is developed in you. That, that you start to trust God every day to do this and that and all this, and pretty soon he's going to ask you for a bigger thing of trust, and you already have a faith muscle because you've been working it. There was something else in my notes here. I was going to tell you this, this little story about me from seminary. Um... You know, they teach you how to preach in seminary sometimes. And, and you're in a room, and it's a little workshop, and you've got like eight or nine other seminary students and a professor, and each of you preach. And so you go in there, and three of you would preach. Well, after you preach, then everybody gets to say something to you about how you did. It's super fun. <laughs> um, there was always one judgment of me. That every, every class I was ever in, and you don't just take one, and it was this. You're not polished. You're not slick. You might think I am polished or I am slick. I don't know. I never thought it was the goal. I thought the goal was to be real and human and to represent God that way. And when I would say that to them, they would go, Huh? Because their job's to produce good speakers. Maybe stumbling around on your words or making mistakes or having your bulletins be slightly wrong, maybe that's a sign that the way you are is that you're actually just human and that you need a Savior and that you recognize it. But this is the body of Christ, and I don't want you to begin to think that you can go and tell people that they need to just accept their church exactly the way it is because God doesn't... I'm not creating little judgment monsters, I hope. The world doesn't need one more hall monitor. We've got 15,000 too many already. What we need are people that understand that love happens in a context of grace where we forgive people and we don't hold long ledgers on what they've done. That doesn't mean we're forgetful. It means we trust people to be who they are. That's actually much harder than forgive and forget. To trust them and to love them as they are. To let God have a priority in their lives. Then we love and we grace and we understand that the process is a big deal that God's on his way, and sometimes the little cul-de-sac that seems like nothing's happening, he's forming Christ in you. And so as you walk, and as you walk worthy of the calling of Christ, the calling that doesn't categorize you but calls you into a new reality, that you would walk and be called, and then you would walk, and it's always a calling that has to do with where you are I think, I think I need to be done. So I'm going to be done. Will you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, today I thank you so much for this audience, for this time, not this audience, that's the wrong word. I thank you for my church, Lord. I thank you for those that get to rub up against me and are learning how to love me even when I'm difficult. I thank you, Lord, for them. In your precious name, amen.